You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. If you are a four or five-year-old, you are welcome to go with the Bowen family to Bible study. So four and five-year-olds, you're welcome to head that way. For the rest of you, let me invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 through 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 1 through 12. You are visiting with us here today. We are thrilled that you are here. We've been working this fall uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we find ourselves kind of right here in the middle of the book. Uh, in chapter 7, and we're going to be in verse 1 through 12. So follow along as I read from God's word. Uh, We'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get to work this morning. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that as your word is read and preached, that you would make us wise unto salvation. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So with the rapid development of medicine and technology over the last century, we we have largely been able to conceal the horrors of death from the public gaze. And, you know, we can kind of minimize the the horrors of death as we numb it and as we medicate for it. You know, I think palliative care is a testimony to God's common grace and helping people to die comfortably. But I think its prevalence, how common it is for people to die under such circumstances, I think it sort of conceals death from the public eye. We hide away the dying because we don't want to see people die. And thus we kind of continue to live in this self-inflicted delusion that we will indeed live forever. And at times, though, 
The existence of death tends to break through the headlines, both in shock and tragedy. A pandemic has a way of doing such things, bringing death to the forefront of our attention. And so we wrestle with death. Few of us have have ever witnessed it with our own eyes. A few of us have, have ever stood over the body of a dying loved one. You observed the the grimace of pain and discomfort across the face of the dying. Have you heard their final gasp for air just before their chest cavity swells and then deflates no more? As one who's ministered to the dying and has seen a few human beings take their final breath with my own eyes, death is sobering. To be in a room, to watch someone die, is a sobering thing. Because watching the dying is sort of like looking into a mirror. I know some of you avoid looking into the mirror. It's just like we avoid death. But as we look and watch the dying, it reminds us of our own mortality. It reminds us of just how short life is. Because you see, the harbinger of death looms over it, whether we care to pay attention or not. And I think simply by banishing the dying to nursing homes and hospital wards or hospice facilities, what happens is that our cultural spiritual senses have become numbed. It's allowed us to forget our own coming deaths and thus ignore the spiritual questions that we ought to be wrestling with concerning eternity. So as the preacher will show us today in Ecclesiastes 7, great wisdom comes by considering death. In fact, the preacher tends to want us to do this quite frequently in this book. He's constantly reminding us that we will die. And it's in this section of Ecclesiastes that the book begins to have a little less structure to it, as we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This is a wisdom book in the Old Testament. And those wisdom books tend to have structure that's a little hard to observe at times. And so it's similar to our chapter today. Our chapter 7 is similar to the book of Proverbs in that sense, if you've read Proverbs. There's a little less structure. There's memorable nuggets of wisdom, but it's sometimes hard to figure out how they're all connected, if they're connected at all. But I think there is a bit of a theme in these Proverbs of Ecclesiastes 7 that kind of unite these Proverbs together. And I think the theme that connects them is that in order to live wisely, we have to live with the end in mind. In order to live wisely, we have to live with the end in mind. So much of Ecclesiastes calls us to, as one book puts it, live life backwards. Live life backwards. In other words, try to live in the present as if you're standing over your own grave, so to speak. And and let that sobriety of your own death help you to live wisely in the present. I think this is exactly what the preacher is trying to do in our section of Scripture today. So let's have the courage not to hide death away, not to minimize it, not to pretend like we're going to live forever, but let's look death straight in the eye this morning, and let's see how it will teach us to live wisely. So the first thing I want to highlight for us is that wisdom lives in the reality of death. Wisdom lives in the reality of death. The the, the first proverb of chapter 7 starts off, a good name is better than precious ointment. There's value in a good name. 
A person's name in Hebrew culture refers to a person's reputation. Their reputation, what they're thought of. Desiring a good reputation in the community is not just simply worrying what people think about you. Lots of people do that today. But very few are considered about having a good name in their community. You see, a good name means that you have a reputation of character, of integrity, of virtue. It means that others think of you as a person who's dependable, reliable, and trustworthy. And so for a Hebrew person, a Hebrew man or woman, to have a good name in the community meant that you were honored and respected and admired in the community in which you lived. Now, we should reject the impulse to popularity. That seems to be all over the place today. So much of fame today is just simply not about character. It's just about knowing how to manipulate the algorithms a little bit, right? And having a well-known name is not the same as having a good name. A few celebrities could learn that lesson, right? Having a well-known name is not the same as having a good name. This cult of celebrity that has engulfed American culture, and indeed, sadly, infects the church in so many ways, is detestable. Only we as Americans tend to have celebrities who are famous for nothing more than being famous. Indeed, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you reject this sort of scourge of the zeal for popularity. In fact, as if you're a Christian, you want to follow in the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a man of no reputation, a man who was despised and rejected by the world. Sometimes having a good name means you're unpopular. You see, Rich Mullins, in a song he wrote before he died, called A Man of No Reputation, he died before he got to record this album that he was working on about the life of Jesus. And one of the songs that he wrote that he never got to record was a song called A Man of No Reputation. And he wrote of Christ. He was a man of no reputation, and by the wise considered a fool. When he spoke about faith and forgiveness in a time when the strongest men ruled. You see, Jesus was not well thought of in terms of popular opinion, but yet he had a name, a good name, a name that was above every name. So as Christians, we have to be very careful. We shouldn't concern ourselves with popularity, with fame, with our own reputation, at least in terms of the eyes of the world. You, you should avoid jumping on the treadmill of the rat race of popularity. But we should seek a good name, particularly in our local communities, in our families, and in our churches. We should develop the reputation of being someone who loves godliness, who loves the word of God, who lives righteously out of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And we do this not for our own self-exaltation, not to be puffed up, not to be exalted, but to exalt Christ with our lives, that he would be magnified, not ourselves. And so when the apostles told the Jerusalem church to select from among you some men to help with the distribution to the widows, they instructed them to find men of good repute. Good repute. Similarly, an elder in the church, as Paul lays down the qualifications, must be above reproach and be well thought of by outsiders. So think about your own life. Think about the name that you're cultivating for yourself. Do you day by day, moment by moment, are you spraying on the fragrant perfume of a good reputation? Does it follow you? Do people identify it? Do they sense it? Indeed, do they smell it? When people think of you, what comes to their mind? And be honest, or 
if you're courageous enough, ask a fellow member of the church. What, what do people think of me when they come, when that, when they come into their mind? Do they, do they think of a gentle and humble and Christ-like person? Or do they think of a bombastic and critical person? Do they consider you someone who is seriously joyful? That there's a spiritual intentionality and intensity to your life marked by heavenly joy? Or are you just the goofball that nobody takes seriously? Do others in your church consider you to be trustworthy and reliable and dependable? Are you respected among your church family for your godly character? Those are questions we ought to ask ourselves because a good name is better than precious ointment. But that leads to the second part of verse one, which feels a little bit like whiplash, right? What does the second part say? And the day of death is better than the day of birth. What is going on here? The, the pivot from this positive opening remark of a good name being better than precious ointment. And now Solomon, or the preacher says, you know, you're just going to die. We go from talking about the value of a good name, and then we just pivot to death almost instantly. So is the preacher here taking a bit of a cynical tongue-in-cheek turn, yet again reminding us of the vanity of our lives before our inevitable deaths? Or is the preacher taking a more optimistic tone as he gives this proverb, reminding us that if we cultivate a good name in life, that the day of our death is actually better than the day of our birth? Is the preacher being cynical or optimistic here? I, I tend to read him as being optimistic. That's the preferred reading. The day of death is better than the day of birth. He's not being sarcastic. He's being real. He's being truthful. Because at the end of our lives, we reap what we have sown over the course of our lives. You see, if you are a Christian, reading verse 1 of our chapter today, you know that death is no longer a foe to be feared, but a crushed enemy to walk over by the power of the gospel into resurrected life. In Christ, we are united to the name that is above every name, the good name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness becomes ours by faith. And so we share in Christ's reward, his inheritance. We share in his resurrection. So thus, if you know that you have credited to you the good name of the Lord Jesus Christ, death is certainly better than the day of your birth. Because in Christ Jesus, we go into eternal life and to eternal joy. Thomas Boston said this of Jesus. He said, in the day of his birth, he was born to die. In the day of his death, he dies to live. Because Jesus defeats death, once and for all, as he triumphs over the grave, we can find ourselves with this sort of perplexity like that of the Apostle Paul, that if we live, we live for the Lord. We live for the Lord. But if we die, we die in the Lord, which is better, right? To live is Christ, to, to die is gain, Paul deliberates, and he goes on to tell the Philippian church, he says, I'm, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, Philippians. You see, for, for, for the Christian, you really know what it means to have your life in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you live with the reality of death, it's going to help you to learn how to live wisely. If all of our life culminates in Christ, then if I die, I die in the Lord. And if I live, then I'm going to be living for the Lord. 
for his kingdom, for his glory. I want to be living for what is of eternal value. It helps us learn what sort of good name we want to cultivate for ourselves. And may that be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as we live and as we serve and as we minister. And as people mourn our own passings, may they be praising God and thanksgiving for the testimony of our lives. See, early in my ministry, I served as a young 20-something pastor in a predominantly 70-something church. Many members teetered on into their 80s, and indeed, some even to their 90s and beyond. The demographics of the church meant that funerals came frequently in my ministry. Occasionally, I would officiate up to three funerals a week. Now, officiating a funeral is intimidating, but it's intimidating particularly for a young 20-something pastor because you are working on a time crunch, right? Funerals often happen in the span of a couple days. You're ministering to a grieving family, and oftentimes you don't haven't even met the family members of the extended family. And so you're trying to make connections and, and share the hope of the gospel. And then you're called to preach the comforts of the Lord Jesus Christ to a hodgepodge group of mourners gathered there. It's, it's, an, it's a difficult situation. However, the more funerals I officiated, the more I grew thankful for the frequency of those funerals. I, I, the more I grew, the more I grew thankful because funerals provided my most important times of evangelism in the course of my ministry. It would often be rule rooms filled with people who didn't know the Lord, who would never attend church on a Sunday morning and hear me preach, but yet I have a captive audience, right? To share the hope of the gospel to those who need to hear it. And so I grew thankful for those opportunities. But attending and preaching funerals, I began to find out, was also not only good for my work as an evangelist, but it was good for my own soul to be there. It was good for me to go regularly to the house of mourning. That's yeah, something what the preacher says in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why is it better to go to the funeral home than to the buffet? Right? Ministering and being and being in the presence of the shadow of death proved incredibly fruitful for me in my young, youthful ministry. And it helped a young, foolish pastor, I think, grow in wisdom by God's grace. Because sorrow is better than laughter, the preacher says in verse 3. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. You see, being in the presence of such death constantly as a young pastor helped me see what is life really all about? And what should I be living for? And better yet, who should I be living for? It was me, week after week, looking into the own mirror of my own mortality and asking the Lord for help and wisdom to live righteously. You see, the house of mourning can make us wise when we live in the reality of death because it makes us glad in intentionality, helps you to live with focus, but not so the foolish. The foolish minimize these realities. They ignore them. Indeed, they reject the reality of death. That leads us to the second point this morning, that wisdom rejects the vanity of fools. We want to reject the vanity of the fool. See this particularly in verse 5 through 6. Because death can lead us to wisdom. That's what the preacher is trying to do in our chapter today. But as we've already talked about, we live in a death-denying world. In the words of Bob Dylan, we all think we're going to be forever young. We are repulsed by the idea of aging in this country, aren't we? 
And we give no thought to our mortality. In fact, we try to hide it away. We live in a culture that idolizes not old age, but, but youthfulness. We are so frightened by age that we try to conceal any evidence that we might be getting older. We Botox away wrinkles. We plug our scalp with hair follicles. We dye our hair to cover the gray. We obsess over fitness in order to look like we're 20 when we're actually 50, right? The scripture says that the gray hair is the crown of glory, but we in America see it as a blemish of shame. We don't want to grow old. We don't like it. It disturbs us. We are perpetual lost boys and girls living in a Neverland, a place of mythical imagination enabled by an agreed-upon cultural conspiracy to never talk or think about death. You see, as the preacher says in verse 4, we're living in a generation of fools. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And then look at what it says in verse 15. It is better for a man to hear, verse 5, excuse me. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. You see, fools don't want to give any thought about death whatsoever. They want to avoid considering how short life is. But the wise go to the house of mourning, the fools avoid it, and they go to the house of mirth. The preacher says it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of the fools. Hearing the instruction of the wise, particularly when it comes from godly counsel, that needed rebuke, it is a blessing to our souls, even though that can be painful for us to hear sometimes. Fools are too proud to receive correction from God's word. When was the last time you were corrected by God's word? If you can't think of a time, then there might be a problem in your own soul, right? We should be readily open when other members and other people in our church come and bring God's word to bear and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, this is what God's word says. And you're not living in accordance with it. If, you don't, if you've never been rebuked in such a way, maybe you're not listening. Maybe you are more foolish than you would think. Hearing that instruction be painful, yes, but fools are too proud to receive such correction. Fools instead have itching ears, right? They would rather hear a soothing song, something pleasurable, something self-affirming, something amusing, something that doesn't challenge them, but something that, that makes me feel good. Sadly, so many fools flock to such teaching and preaching today, don't they? The preacher raises such an important question for us. And it's a question you need to examine your own life and answer carefully. Who has your ear? Who has your ear? Who influences you the most? Who is your teacher? Do you have a, a wise counsel around you? Or do you have the counsel of fools? Sadly, I don't think most of us think about such questions in any sort of intentional way. Whoever has our attention is what attracts us at any given moment, what intrigues us, what allures us at any given moment. Consider the gift of wise counsel. Wise counsel helps us set our mind on that which is above where Christ is. Wise counselors point us to the truth of God's word and help us think biblically, even if that biblical counsel comes in the form of a correction or a rebuke. You can find this sort of godly counsel if you seek it. You can find it in a member or friend in this church. You can find it from an elder. You can find it from good books and Christian authors and teachers who help us think biblically about matters in life. 
Foolish counselors actually do the complete opposite of that. They want us to live for today. They want us to forget God's word and thereby deny it and deny the scriptural call for us to live holy lives in Christ Jesus. Rather than seeking the sanctification that comes by the spirit, they seek for satisfaction in the house of mirth. I hope, I pray that each and every one of us are developing friendships with unbelievers in this church, that we are loving them and that we are sharing with them the hope and the good news of the gospel, both by our life and by our speech. But we must be cautious in those friendships. You can easily find yourself listening to their counsel and having your speech and your desires bent towards the world, not to the Lord. As Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. Be careful which friends have your ear and thus the power to steer your heart in a particular direction. This is even more challenging because now we live in a digital age, which is like a buffet of teachers for you to pick from. It is quite easy to put together your own dream team of fools, so to speak, right? You can stream media, you can find the influencers you want to listen to, you can find the YouTube vlogger that that really connects with you, right? And more, you can find all of that with just a couple searches on the internet. You see, everyone today is, is platform building, right? That's the word, that's the buzzword now. Everybody's building a platform, trying to build a business from earning your ear and thus earning your money. Be careful, be careful, church. What blogs you read, which people you follow, which podcasts you listen to, or which videos you watch. Sometimes we find ourselves being duped quite literally, by the song of fools. Just take a gander at the hit songs and the lyrical sermons on pop radio. And yes, they are lyrical sermons. Don't be naive. I I don't intend to set down like a legalistic rule of Christian media consumption, right? But we have to be discerning by the Spirit as believers. Listen to the conviction and leading of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit prompts you and says, this is not the best thing to be turning your ear towards, and be convicted and repent. Listen to the conviction and leading of the Holy Spirit in these matters and recognize that when what you are hearing from your media of consumption, when, when what you're hearing is deviating from the truth of the Bible, be discerning about that. Identify it in your mind. Curate within your own soul and your own life. Curate a counsel of wisdom, only in your community, in your church, and in your family, but also even in your consumption of media. Surround yourself with the instruction of the wise, and that those who point you to Christ, those are the people you want in your life. You want those who will help you not not, not second-guess God's word, but trust in what God's word says so that you might be cultivating in your own life holiness and godliness by the power of the Spirit. Be discerning. Be discerning. But we also see here in verse 6 a rebuke, a reminder, right? For as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. You see, the song of fools makes a big splash. It sounds alluring. It gets your attention quite quickly, but, but the preacher says their laughter is like the crackling thorns under a pot. It's loud. It makes a big flash, but it's gone quickly. It comes to nothing rapidly. 
You see, the fool embraces all the vanity of life under the sun that the preacher has been warning us about throughout this entire series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Jesus gives us a similar warning in Luke chapter 6, verse 25. He says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So, so will it be for every fool who lives their lives in the delusions of their vanity, who live their lives in rejection of God's word, who lives their lives neglecting the reality of death and the coming eternity, they will laugh now, but soon they will mourn and they will weep. Charles Spurgeon talked in a sermon about the speed in which death comes for us. Fools deny this reality, but we are wise if we realize just how quickly death comes. I think the older you get, the more you realize how fast time seems to pass by. That's just an observation you and I have. That's an observation Charles Spurgeon had in his own generation. Here's what he preached. He says, it's much nearer to us, death is, than we think. To those of you who have been past 50, 60, or 70 years of age, it must, of necessity, be very near. To others of us who are in the prime of life, it is not far off. For I suppose we are all conscious that time flies more swiftly with us now than ever it did. The years of our youth seem to have been twice as long as the years are now that we are men. It was but yesterday that the buds began to swell and burst, and now the leaves are beginning to fall, and soon we shall be expecting to see old winter taking up his accustomed place. The years whirl along so fast that we cannot see the months which, as it were, make the spokes of the wheel. The whole thing travels so swiftly that the axle thereof grows hot with speed. We are flying as on the, some mighty eagle's wings swiftly on towards eternity. Let us then talk about preparing to die. It is the greatest thing we have to do, and we have soon to do it. So let us talk and think something about it. Spurgeon highlights death comes quickly, much quicker than you think. And as that wheel, as those spokes move around and round and round and round, you would be wise to stop today and to consider death, consider your soul, consider eternity. Fools, they don't want to think about that. They don't want to think about that. They want a good song. They want to go to the house of mirth, not to the house of mourning, but today I invite you to join me and our church as we come to the house of mourning. This is something we need to talk about, something we need to consider and reflect upon. Let us go to the house of mourning together, and let's listen to the rebuke of the wise. Let's reject the vanity of fools, and let's get to the business of preparing our souls for eternity. And that leads, thirdly, to wisdom possesses the patience of perspective. Wisdom possesses the patience of perspective. Here we begin to see just how the reality of death can help us live wisely as believers in verse 7 through 10. Death gives us perspective. When you're living with the end in mind, things begin to get a little clearer in the present. So the preacher does this in a series of verses, verses 7 through 10, that I think deal all with this theme of perspective, the perspective that death gives. In verse 7, we see that wisdom gives perspective on perplexity. Look at what verse 7 says. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. You see, as we've talked about in Ecclesiastes chapter four and in other places, the oppression and injustice of the world can really disturb us and perplex us. And even the wise can't fully understand God's workings in the world, his hidden ways. 
But wisdom can help us gain some perspective on God's working in the world. And it can also help us avoid committing injustice in the world by taking a bribe and thus corrupting the heart. In verse 8, we see that wisdom gives the perspective of experience. Look at verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Here is where time and age can make us wise, because we can see all of life from a better vantage point. You've got more time under your belt, so to speak. So you can see things more clearly. Seeing the end of a thing is better than the beginning of the thing, and it cultivates within us an attitude of patience rather than pride. We know from life's experience there are ups and there are downs. And for those who are young, learning to examine life from the end can put you on the fast track to wisdom. Jonathan Edwards, at the ripe young age of 19, wrote in his resolutions, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Even if you're young, live with the end in mind, and it will give you wisdom, the wisdom of perspective. In verse 9, we see that wisdom gives perspective on anger, on anger. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. You see, we see that the, the present ought not to frustrate us, not ought to disturb us, not ought to lead us to anger. Wisdom gives us perspective, even on the present irritations that we face. There will always be things that frustrate you in this life. Fools have short fuses. While there is a place for godly and righteous anger, the sort of anger described with this particular proverb is not what that has in mind. This sort of anger is explosive and sinful and carnal. A heart filled with anger can actually lodge in the heart, creating a, a life by which you refuse to give forgiveness to people. It can create within you a heart that, that is bitter and, and jaded. You see, possessing wisdom can give you perspective on your anger, and it can help you live a quiet and godly life in Christ Jesus. In verse 10, we see that wisdom gives perspective on the past. Look at what verse 10 says. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. In verse 10, we see that wisdom gives us a sort of perspective, not only on the present, but also our memories, our past. As we have seen in Ecclesiastes, old age doesn't necessarily mean that you will be wise. An old fool looks back on his history through the lens of nostalgia. Nostalgia. Nostalgia makes rosy memories of gray. You, you can look back on those old sweet memories that you have, right? You can, you can look back on pictures of that fun family trip to the zoo, and you can gawk over how cute the kids used to be. But chances are you don't remember cleaning up vomit out of the van on the side of the road to get there, nor the meltdown of tears that happened that afternoon when everybody was tired and grumpy, right? Our, we, we have a very selective memory. And we tend to make our memories more rosier than they actually are. Nostalgia distorts our memory of the past. And it can cause us to be cynical and depressed, not only about the present, but especially about the future. You see, as a pastor, I've seen nostalgia aplenty in churches. You know the saying, remember the good old days. This is the way we used to do it. And as a pastor shepherding God's people for many years, I'm convinced that nostalgia is Satan's towel to smother out the spiritual flame of future revival. 
When we get lost in our memories, we give up on the present and we fail to live in wisdom and we fail to be proactive in working towards the glory of God. This is a warning to those of us who are older in this room, that as you age, be careful of nostalgia's perversion of the past. The preacher will not let you get away with such actions. He won't let you do it. There is nothing new under the sun. Remember the recurring refrain in the book. So listen carefully. The past was not as good as you remember it. The present is not as bad as you think. And the future is not as hopeless as you feel. Wisdom has perspective over our days. You see, when we gain biblical wisdom, the Spirit of God will give you the wisdom of perspective. When you look at death, when you consider death, we can begin to look wisely over the course of our lives. And if we grow in this wisdom, we can find ourselves protected by it. And that leads to verse 11 through 12. Wisdom provides the wealth of of protection, the wealth of protection. The preacher has described repeatedly throughout this book the uncertainty of riches. We talked about that considerably last week, that wealth just doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give meaning into our lives. You can't be satisfied with your money. You just can't happen. However, the preacher does compare wisdom and wealth in verse 11 through 12. Look at what he says. Look at verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So so receiving the inheritance of wisdom is, is an advantage to those who seek it. Wisdom, like wealth, can provide protection in your life. I mean, think about it, for example. If you are wealthy, and you've got plenty of financial resources at your disposal, uh, you can more easily recover from tragedies in life, can't you? That if a hurricane comes and rip off your roof, you've got money to replace it. If you have an unexpected surgery and thousands of dollars in medical bills, if you've got a nest egg, then you can weather that storm. Without wealth, such expenses can devastate you, can't they? These unexpected financial disasters can ruin people financially. The preacher says, though, that wisdom functions similarly like this as we consider wealth. Wisdom provides protection and advantage, particularly through the unexpected things we will encounter in our lives. Meaning that you and I, we should seek to grow in wisdom. We should seek to attain more wisdom, but because as we gain more wisdom from the Lord and from his word, we will be able to live wisely for God's glory. We make decisions then that honor the Lord, and we walk wisely, and as we do, we live God-honoring, healthy, productive lives for the glory of the Lord. And even though wisdom, biblically, is incredibly practical and helpful in this life, the day of death will still come for us all. The good news of the gospel, the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that the wisdom of God has indeed come to us and given us protection even from death itself. The Lord Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Seek him. Paul says that in Christ, God has hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus that we fill our hearts and minds with the word of Christ as we do this, as we fill our minds with Jesus, we let uh, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 
As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Meaning that if you want to live wisely in the face of death, if you want the protection that wisdom brings, then you need to know who that wisdom is. And that is Jesus. By the wisdom of God, we find protection from death in Jesus's death. That the Lord Jesus Christ has taken on death as our final foe. And he died in our place. And Jesus rose again on the third day, conquering death. So thus, everyone who dies in the Lord will be covered by the refuge of Christ. This mighty fortress that we have in the gospel. He died in our place. He rose again. Death's sting is removed because of the protection of Christ. If you have repented of your sin, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you will be given forgiveness of your sins, and you will be given eternal life so that, just as the preacher says, the day of your death will be better than the day of your birth. If you want wisdom, seek it. Seek it. Remember the passage Pastor Steve read at the start of our our service today from Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. Seek out this wisdom. Seek out the wisdom of Christ that comes from the word of Christ, the Bible. You see, the Lord gives wisdom, and he gives it through his son, the Lord Jesus. Find your life in him. Turn from your sins and seek the Lord by faith, and then you can know. You can know the protection that wisdom brings, protection that takes you through the shadow of death and brings you into the glory of heaven. When we know Jesus, we can live in the fear of the Lord, not in fear of death. We can live freely. We can live sacrificially. We can live always with hope in this life because we know that just as Jesus is risen, so too will we rise in Christ. Charles Ward was a sergeant in the Union Army. The Civil War, as you might imagine, was a deadly time in American history. And though many soldiers hoped to make it home, it was a time in which the shadow of death hung over the whole country. One of those moments in history where death is prevalent in the public sphere, sort of like a pandemic. In one of his last letters home, Charles Ward wrote to his family. He said, I hope I may come home again, but life here is uncertain. A few days later, Ward received a mortal wound on the field of Gettysburg. And so he was wounded and he was dying, but he was able to live another week. And on his deathbed, he penned a final letter to his mother. And this is what he wrote. Dear mother, I may not again see you, but do not fear for your tired soldier boy. Death has no fears for me. My hope is still firm in Jesus. Meet me and Father in heaven with all my dear friends. I have no special message to send you, but bid you all a happy farewell. Your affectionate and soldier son, 
Charles Ward. You see, life is uncertain. You don't know when you will die. You might live 70, 80, 90, 100 years. Who knows? You might not make it past today. Death will come unexpectedly for us all. But if we live in wisdom, if we gain the perspective that death brings, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of our souls, then we will not fear death. We will not fear death. We will welcome it. Instead, we will see it like Charles Ward did. We will see death as a happy farewell. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to consider death this morning. Lord, so many times we live ourselves in the house of mirth. We, we don't like going to the house of mourning. We don't like being confronted with our mortality, Lord. We don't like to think about death. But Lord, the preacher from your word forces us to consider it. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to get to the place this morning where we can say the day of death is better than the day of birth. Lord, I pray that we can say that this day because we know the wisdom of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wisdom incarnate, wisdom enfleshed, wisdom who died in our place for our sins. Father, I pray that as we consider our own mortality, as we consider the brevity of our lives, but as we consider our own funeral, Lord, may our souls be secure and find comfort in the refuge that is Jesus. Lord, may he protect us from sin and condemnation. And Lord, may he carry us into eternal life. Lord Jesus, we know that is only possible if we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus. So Lord, I pray for those who have no hope in death, Lord, who are anxious, Lord, as they enjoy the songs of fools. Father, I pray that you would lead them to repentance to stay. Help them to turn from their sins and help them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to live every day that we've been given as your children. May we live wisely for your kingdom's cause and for your glory. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would teach us as we submit ourselves to the counsel of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.